know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to collaborate with the La Follette School of Public Affairs to interview Dr. Tana Johnson, Professor of Public Affairs, to talk about global governance and institutions. Professor Johnson's award-winning book, Organizational Progeny, Why Governments Are Losing Control Over the Proliferating Structures of Global Governance, shows that in a variety of policy areas, global governance structures are becoming harder for national governments to control. We'll talk to Professor Johnson about her research on this question, as well as many of her other projects that inform her research and teaching. First things first, thank you so much for being with us today on 1050 Bascom, Professor Johnson. It's great to be here. Thanks. And since this is the first time that we've had you on the podcast, we want to start with just a little bit about you and your background and teaching interests. We're curious as to what set you on the pathway towards becoming a professor and studying your area of work. Were you like a politics and policy junkie as a kid, or did your kind of love for it start in high school or college? Just like, what shaped your academic and intellectual interests towards global governance and institutions? That's a great question. And I really have quite varied interests. So as you point out, I'm interested in global governance and institutions. I'm interested in international relations and U.S. foreign pro- policy more broadly. I'm interested in economic policy and environmental policy and more generally in how there are interactions between states, and by that I mean national governments, with lots of other types of actors. So whether we're talking about the United Nations system or non-governmental organizations or corporations or so forth. So I have a lot of interest and it's really fascinating to reflect on how I got to this spot. I think sometimes I encounter people who developed interests like mine because they were really close to these things. So maybe they grew up near Washington, D.C., or maybe they lived in lots of different countries, or maybe they had a family member who worked for the government. But I think my interest developed because I was really far from these things. And yet, I could see how they affected ordinary people's lives, you know, everything from what kinds of products we buy in the store or to how safe we are. And so over time, I started to get really curious, who are these people that are shaping foreign policy or international policy? And are they much different from the rest of us? Are they pretty much the same? And so part of the excitement of my work is looking at foreign things and then figuring out whether really they're so foreign after all. Well, speaking of which, and speaking of your research, we want to jump right into your book, Organizational Progeny, Why Governments Are Losing Control Over the Proliferating Structures of Global Governance, which, for our listeners, won the Chadwick F. Alger Prize, recognizing the best book published on the subject of international organization and multilateralism. So, of course, we had to have you on the 1050 podcast to talk about it. Just to kind of cover our bases and make sure we're all on the same page, can you give us a history of this project and how it kind of came about? Well, my book, Organizational Progeny, is a good example of my interest in figuring out whether things that initially seem really foreign are, in fact, operating according to patterns that we have seen elsewhere. 
So I have long been intrigued by international organizations like the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, et cetera. And at the time that I started working on this book, the way that a lot of scholars were talking about international organizations boiled down to, oh, they just take their marching orders from the United States. And I thought, hmm, that's very different from the impression that a lot of lay people in the U.S. have, which is that these organizations are not pursuing U.S. interests and, in fact, are either standing in the way of what the U.S. wants to do or maybe are even pressuring the U.S. to do things that government officials or the public aren't thrilled about. And I started thinking, well, why wouldn't that be true? After all, the U.S. and other countries are delegating things to these international organizations, like regulating international trade or monitoring nuclear capabilities or fighting pandemics or whatever. And in our own lives, we know how reliant we are on delegating things because none of us can do everything on our own. But we also know that delegation often doesn't work out quite like we'd hoped. So I wanted to look more closely at the people who are employed within these international organizations. What do they want? How do they operate when they're getting lots of different orders from lots of different governments? Isn't there sometimes space for them to do their own thing, even if that's not in keeping with the marching orders from the U.S. or other major countries? And what I argued in the book was, yes, there is that space and there are opportunities to carve out more. I examined what I call organizational progeny, organizations that are offshoots of existing organizations. And there are lots of these. For example, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, is an offshoot of the UN Environment Program and the World Meteorological Organization. Or UNAIDS is an offshoot of the World Health Organization and several other organizations. Or the World Food Program is an offshoot of the Food and Agriculture Organization and so forth. And so I argued that the bureaucrats working within the parent organization are sometimes key instigators for creating a new organization. And even if they didn't instigate the process themselves, if they're at the negotiating table, they have ways to put their mark on their progeny. So for example, compared with a situation where only government officials were negotiating, we'd be more likely to see design ideas that would curtail government's ability to meddle with the offshoot organization. For example, not giving particular countries veto power over decisions, or by letting organizations raise funds from lots of different sources and not just from government coffers. So that's what inspired the book and then what I ended up arguing in it. And I, I kind of understand and can relate to some of that stuff about uh, delegation not always working. Sometimes I feel like when I try to delegate the dishes to my roommates after I've taken the responsibility for taking out the trash and cleaning the bathroom, that <laughs> that breakdown doesn't always work out and I end up doing them anyway. Um, right. They didn't they didn't quite follow your marching orders, did they? Right. Exactly. And I'm trying to be the United States over here. But then to get a little bit more into the book and your research, could you share with us a little bit your methodological approach on how you analyzed and tried to test this argument? Sure. I used what's called a mixed method approach. I analyzed a new data set that I'd gathered myself about design features of about 200 different international organizations. And I also did deep process tracing and case studies of a handful of major international organizations. And this mixed method approach was really important for me because I wanted to see whether my argument held any weight in the population of international organizations overall. And that's where the data set came into play, but also whether it held any weight in major organizations that we tend to care about a lot. And that's where the case studies came into play. How did you designate which case studies to pick? You talked about how you wanted to test them for which ones it seems people cared about. How did you choose 
like which organizations were the ones that people cared about? I tried to pick major global organizations rather than smaller regional ones. I tried to select organizations that had some brand recognition. So they would be something that people would not see as kind of a niche organization that only a few people knew about, but something that was more broadly known. And, um, and so that ended up being not completely, but largely organizations within the UN system. So as you may know, there's the United Nations, but then there's also the entire United Nations family with lots of organizations like the World Health Organization, the UN Environment Program, and others that are under that umbrella. So a lot of my cases ended up being affiliated in some sense with the UN family of organizations. That makes a lot of sense. So then not to not to spoil the book, or maybe to spoil the book, what then were some of the major findings or takeaways from this research? And then how are they informing your current and further research? So the answer was that my argument did hold and the mixed methods were a nice way of approaching this because I was able to assuage myself that this was an argument that held both in the population overall, as well as in organizations that most scholars or policymakers would be most fixated on. And that's why, as the book subtitle points out, I say that governments are losing control over global governance. And I find that to be true in two senses. So first of all, this phenomenon of organizational progeny means that people working within the United Nations and elsewhere are creating more organizations. And so that's just a growing population for governments to try to oversee. And then secondly, when these international bureaucrats can influence the design of new organizations, those new organizations are often insulated against government's favorite channels of influence, like, say, cutting off funding. So governments are losing control in both of those senses. And I think the way that this continues to inform my research is that my recognition of the pivotal roles that bureaucrats working within international organizations can play has really been enhanced and deepened by that research. And it's certainly true that governments try to give them marching orders, but these delegation relationships don't always go as planned. And that's in part because the bureaucrats and international organizations also do have opportunities to do their own thing. This is kind of, I guess, getting into normative question territory, but do you think that like, just to put it in very simple terms, is this a good thing? Because I mean, like, on one hand, it seems like it's kind of antithetical to general ideas of democracy, if policy that is governing or at least guiding sovereign nations is kind of slipping away from control of the governments that they elect. But at the same time, I think there's an argument to be made for expertise in that people who work in these bureaucracies have highly specialized and also highly regulated roles within pretty secured hierarchies that to some measure ensure accountability and thus allow them to create good policy outside of, say, like populist whims or demagoguery. So what I guess are some of the implications there and are there pros and cons? So you make a really good point that one of the reasons why we would delegate to these international organizations in the first place is because we are hoping to benefit from expertise that they can gather that we either don't need to gather or we don't need to gather alone. So I think the expertise angle is a is a very important one. And you do see that with some of the organizational progeny that I study, for example. If you think about an organization like UNAIDS, which was an offshoot of the World Health Organization and several development organizations, for example, here is an area where you have this new disease that's coming onto the scene in the 1980s. 
And everybody is scrambling to know more about this. It isn't as if the United States already has all the expertise that's out there about HIV AIDS. And so because that expertise is so widespread and because we need to know about what's happening in other parts of the world, it's really important to have an organization like UNAIDS that can focus on this new disease and bring that expertise to bear. But I think more broadly, even beyond the expertise angle, you know, there are reasons why the people working within international organizations bring something that's distinctive, something that national governments can't bring. And that is an interest in serving an international public. And nation states really can't claim to be at the end of the day looking out for the international public as much as they can be claiming to be looking out for their own citizens, for their own national interests and so forth. And so we don't really have a lot of other actors that can fill that space looking for what's in the good of international society or of people more generally, regardless of national borders. And I think that's an important role for international bureaucrats to play because they come from all sorts of different countries. They often have an allegiance to their organization or their policy issue that transcends some of their, their national identity. And so they're very important that way. And I would compare it maybe to pluralism and the important role that pluralism plays in democracies. We consider the idea of having lots of different voices and interests represented in a democracy to be a very good way of, of handling things. And so there are ways to, um, to supplement democracy that aren't just involved in, say, uh, votes for the people that work within these organizations. I think those are all really, really good points. I'd never thought about the implications of pluralism on, say, like an international governance scale. I think that's a, a, a really, really interesting idea. But then kind of speaking about these broader ideas, I'd like to talk about your research a bit more broadly as your work, as we've been discussing, examines the operation and designs of international institutions. And I'd like to ask just kind of then to broaden out this this question in this conversation, what are some of the issues and problems that are the focus of your current research? So a lot of the things that I'm looking at now involve the complexities that arise when we have issue areas that overlap. So to take an example, I look at both economic policy and environmental policy. And if we think about a tricky problem like climate change, there are ways that the economy is actually potentially spurring climate change because of the products, the fuels, the industries that we pursue. And there are also ways that the economy could perhaps deal with the challenge of climate change, for example, with new technologies or with different ways of transporting things or, or making goods and so forth. And so I think one of the big complications that interests me is what happens when you can't just silo a particular policy area and saying, well, we're all about just opening markets or we're all about cleaning up the environment, but that you recognize that you have a lot of other stakeholders, you have a lot of other veto players, you have a lot of other actors that need to be brought on board to deal with these complex issues that, that we're dealing with right now. And so I think that kind of angle of thinking about delegation and design and what complicates those things is really interesting. So some of my work looks at the World Trade Organization, for example, and the important role that it may play in technology transfer or in creating freer trade among environmental goods and things like that. So that overlap of policy areas, I think, is, is really interesting and, and will be with us for a while. Is overlap necessarily a bad thing? I think the assumption is that like in bureaucratic organizations, overlap means bloat, right? Like if you have two different if you have two different sectors 
of a bureaucratic organization or even in like the international system to different international institutions that are trying to cover the same issue area, then that means that the system is is inefficient. But I could also see an argument being made for that one might provide accountability over the other or then to talk about say, you know, the the idea of pluralism that we were talking about earlier, these two different organizations are two different parts of a single organization that are dealing with the same issue might then be better able to incorporate different voices on the issue and thus better represent international interests in the policy outcomes that they create. So what dimensions of overlap make it a problem? And are there any redeeming qualities to it? I think you're exactly right. It's neither all good nor all bad to have overlap. I think overlap does complicate situations, but usually overlap exists where a situation is also pretty complicated, like the climate change example that I was just talking about. I do think there are some ways, though, where overlap can actually be really effective. So again, sticking with this overlap of, say, environmental policy and economic policy, there is an environmental multilateral agreement called CITES, that's the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of wild fauna and wild flora. And essentially what that single treaty tries to do is protect the environment. So protect plants and animals that are in risk of really having depleted numbers and yet do it through trade mechanisms. So there are certain plants and animals that simply cannot be traded and governments agree to that. And they agree to crack down on trafficking and things like that that go around the rules. And then they also have animals and plants that are simply protected. And so there may be limits on how much they can be traded, but there is some trade allowed. And then when you see governments that are not living up to their promises, what you might have is trade sanctions that are placed on those governments so that there's a real enforcement mechanism there. So that is an over between economic and environmental policy that many people have come to appreciate where you actually have some teeth behind enforcing environmental protection because you can slap trade sanctions onto non-conforming countries. So you're right. It's not always a, a bad thing at all. Really, really interesting. Fascinating. And then, you know, earlier we were talking about how one of the reasons that nation states might delegate responsibilities to international institutions is to benefit from the expertise that they often foster. What are some of the other reasons that nation states might delegate responsibilities to international institutions in spite of the implications of, I guess, you know, giving up a little bit of that national sovereignty? Well, some of it's related to expertise. So not just expertise, but simply a division of labor more broadly. So maybe even if it's something that you do have some expertise on, or you could get the expertise yourself, you have so many other things that you could spend your time on or do better than anyone else that it just makes sense to have a division of labor where someone else is delegated that task. And so specializing in different activities is an important part of it. I think it's also an important mechanism for countries to come together. And so sometimes delegation is important because, as I insinuated, people working within these organizations may have a more holistic view of what the public interest is than particular national governments might have. And when it comes to problems that go across national borders, it's important to have that perspective as well. Another reason why international organizations are attractive um, for delegation is that it's a hand-tying mechanism in some ways. So in the same way that you might 
ask someone else to make a decision for you or make sure that, that you get to the gym on time or something like that. This can be a mechanism for states to use to make more credible commitments and, and say, look, I have a means that will make sure that I do what I say I'm going to do, even if I'm not feeling like it in the moment. And then finally, I think this is a, a little bit of a more unfortunate fact, but international organizations are really handy to scapegoat. So sometimes you actually want to hand things over to someone else. So you can say, well, if you didn't like that decision, please don't blame me. It was actually put on me by this other organization that that has this influence or power over me. So there's lots of different reasons why, despite all of the challenges of delegation, there's a lot of attractive pieces of it that prompt states to continue to delegate to international organizations. Uh, yeah, I especially that last one. I'd never, I'd never really considered that. I think that all makes a lot of sense, and I think that can do a, a lot of work in, in in explaining a lot of a lot of these decisions. And geez, there's just so much that I'd I'd like to talk about with that. But I also, while we have you, want to ask about this super interesting course for the fallout that you've been teaching called the public and private sectors in policymaking. And I want to just kind of get into some of some of the, the questions and objectives in the course, because, you know, there's been this popular ethos in American politics. And, and you know, you hear it all the time. I, my dad said this, admittedly, that government would be more effective if it were run more like a business. Can you talk about the history of this argument in American politics and how it fits into your course in the context of more demands on both sectors to be more like others? Yeah, this is a really fun course to teach because, as you probably can tell, I find it fascinating to think about the various kinds of actors that governments have to work with or work through in order to carry out public policy. There's been a long-running debate in the U.S., but also throughout the world about the proper balance between the state, that is governments or the public sector, and the market, that is firms or the private sector. At some points in time, there's a big push to shift more toward the market. And at other times, there's a widespread desire to shift more toward the state. And that emphasis really varies over time. Broadly speaking, there's often a demand for governments to take on a big role when some kind of crisis is happening, and a demand for firms to take on a big role when things are calmer. It's really a pendulum swing, I'd say, and the emphasis varies over time. That's one of the major things that we examine in the class. What do you make of that argument that government would be more effective if it were run like a business? Do you buy that or do you think that it might not necessarily be as great as a lot of its proponents claim it to be? Hmm. Well, I think it's tempting to look at what each sector can do and then ask the other sector, hey, why can't you do that too? So, for example, we might admire the efficiency or innovation of the private sector and then say, governments, you need to be more streamlined or more creative. And we might admire the ability of governments to take on a lot of risk and make a really big move that's intended to help people, even if it's not profitable. And then say, hey, businesses, why couldn't you think beyond just the next business quarter or help out more with what's good for society? So in the U.S., prior to the COVID pandemic, there was lots of interest in making government more efficient, like businesses. And in the midst of the COVID pandemic, there's been a lot of outcry for businesses to be more public-minded like governments. So normatively, I think it's important to recognize at least two things about the public sector and the private sector. First, they have some key similarities. For instance, both contain a lot of bureaucracy, which is a particular organizational form that has upsides and downsides. 
big government gets dinged for being bureaucratic, but the reality is that a lot of big business is really bureaucratic too. But second, the public sector and the private sector are different in some really crucial ways too. Their goals and their bottom lines, for example, are very different. So it doesn't always make sense and it's not always feasible to expect each sector to start acting more like the other sector. Instead, it's like you've got someone who's good at golf and you've got someone who's good at football. Should we expect the golfer to take up football and excel? And should we expect the football player to take up golf and excel? No, everyone's likely to be better off if the golfer sticks with golf and the football player sticks with football. And then you've got guys like me who are good at neither golf nor football. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stick to trying to, to struggle my way through a podcast interview. But to keep talking on this topic, is the dissolution of boundaries between the public and the private sector decision making a net plus in your view, or does it maybe depend on the issue? Just how do you talk about the normative questions about public sector versus private sector policymaking? I think the dissolution simply means that we have a complicated situation where we need both of those actors to be involved in order to get done the things that we want to get done. And so I think if you look at what's happening with COVID, for example, we've got governments who are funding research and buying up vaccines to give to their people for free. And we've also got businesses who are actually developing and delivering those vaccines. So a public policy goal like health is dependent on both the public sector and the private sector. And importantly, there's a blurriness in the division of labor between the two. Getting shots and arms involves both of them working with and through each other in lots of different ways. And then, you know, we talk about the public sector and the private sector as if they are like one thing, right? As if they are like these ideal types. But I mean, as we know, really no two public sectors or no two private sectors between different countries are alike. So how do differences across countries in terms of the private versus public sector policymaking either complicate or sometimes facilitate global governance in international institutions? Yeah, well, I, I emphasized earlier how my course on the public and private sectors and policymaking looks at how the emphasis on states or on markets varies over time. But that's just one of the things that we look at. So as you point out, it's also important to think about variation about across countries. If we think about the U.S. and China, for example, which are both very powerful countries, but they've set up their political and economic systems in very different ways. In China, the private sector is subordinate to the public sector. The central government is very involved in the economy. It has a lot of domestic and foreign policy goals that are tied to controlling the economy and even directly owns large parts of the economy. So China is probably on one end of a continuum while the U.S. is on the other. And this illustrates a bigger pattern that we see in lots of countries. Countries like the U.S., which industrialized relatively early, tend to have a big role for the private sector, whereas countries like China, which industrialized relatively recently, tend to have a big role for the public sector. The result is that you've got some countries that tend to subordinate markets to the state, and you've got other countries that tend to subordinate the state to markets. And then to further complicate things, you've got a third set of countries that are more in the middle. That domestic context really shapes a country's foreign policy values and preferences, too. So in answer to your question about what that means for global governance and international institutions, you've got different groups of states that think about things in very different ways and expect different things from international institutions. How that plays out in a particular institution is intimately connected with the context for that institution. So in the United Nations General Assembly, for example, where every country has one vote, 
countries that think like the U.S. can be outvoted by the majority of member countries because developing countries are more numerous than industrialized countries. That's why you'll often hear American officials complaining about how they were thwarted in the UN. But on the other hand, in the International Monetary Fund, for example, where votes are weighted by how much money a country contributes to the fund, countries that think like the US can often get their way because the poor developing countries have little or no vote. That's why you'll often hear officials from developing countries complaining about how they were pushed around by the IMF. You'll also hear officials from more recently industrialized countries like China complaining about international organizations not granting them institutional power that's more commensurate with their growing economic power. And the result is a lot of complaints about international organizations from multiple angles. That makes sense. It does seem like most of the time when we hear about an international organization in the news, it is because someone's complaining about it. But speaking of which, we can't have you on 1050 Bascom and not ask about the application of your research to the global pandemic, because international organizations have had a huge role in managing and interacting with the COVID-19 pandemic. And just as I mentioned earlier, we've heard a lot of complaints about them during the pandemic as well. So first, I just kind of want to ask broadly, how and I guess have world governing institutions been effective or maybe not so effective over the last year and a half in terms of managing and dealing with the pandemic? A key question. In fall 2020, I published an article that looked in part at the World Health Organization's response to COVID. And you and I are chatting in April 2021, and maybe there'll be a turnaround in the future. But I don't think the WHO has performed particularly well during the pandemic up to now. However, what I argue in the article is that this isn't exactly the fault of the people employed within the WHO itself. And instead, I try to point out three things. First of all, the WHO has been hampered by some of its most important member countries, which have interfered with the work of the organization and gotten into fights with each other. The U.S., as you probably know, has has criticized China for withholding information from the WHO, and China has criticized the U.S. for withholding funding from the WHO. And this is what can happen when an international organization isn't very insulated from the governments it's supposed to serve. The second thing I point out is that international organizations in general, and the WHO in particular, are often set up to enshrine longer-term collective interests. In other words, every national government knows that it's going to be tempted to do what's easy or demanded in the short term, or what would serve its own narrow interests. And you and I as individual human beings, we face really similar temptations every day. Should I eat this cupcake and binge watch TV shows? Or should I go to the gym for a workout that might help me live a longer, healthier life and be around for my grandkids? So we know how that works. And the the trick is to set things up so I'll make the right choice, even though in the moment I don't feel like it. And for governments, international organizations are often a way to get to the right choice. The one that serves these longer term or collective interests and make them happen. But what happened with COVID is that we saw a lot of governments who were tempted to defy the WHO and they indulged those temptations. And then third, we're living in a time where there's a lot of skepticism about experts, both domestically and international, on the international level. And we simply didn't see everyone deferring to technical knowledge or public health expertise. That's definitely a problem for an organization like the WHO, which is staffed with these types of experts and is trying to act sort of like a CDC for the world. So I think a lack of insulation from fighting member countries, 
and being an embodiment of longer term or collective interests that national governments will be tempted to ignore and offering expertise to a world that's divided over the goodness of experts has hurt the WHO during the first year of responding to COVID. How likely do you think it is that the WHO is going to be able to improve on these regards, either during the course of this pandemic or in the future? Because it seems to me like it might be a difficult ask to solve these problems. You know, like further insulation and deference to the WHO seems to me to be a pretty hard ask to a lot of governments who are already pretty criticized for, or at least by a subsection of their population, for deferring too much to international institutions. And then also, I think, getting states to have a lesser discount value in terms of valuing long-term solutions over short-term solutions has been one of the never-ending battles in terms of politics. And then I feel like we'd have to have some kind of major change to the political zeitgeist to reverse this kind of anti-expertise and expert sentiments that we've got going on. So I don't know. I kind of feel pessimistic that these things might actually change to enable the WHO to work better. Do you feel that way or how likely do you think it is that they'll improve? You're right in seeing some reason for pessimism. I think I would point to maybe two reasons to have some hope, though. One is that financing is really important for the World Health Organization. And so as you saw on the news, the U.S. really pulled its funding for the World Health Organization in the midst of this crisis and then threatened to withdraw from the World Health Organization, a decision that has recently been reversed. So the idea of a powerful and important state like the U.S. not being involved in the World Health Organization would doom it much more than the current situation where the U.S. stays in. And also where the U.S., which was the biggest contributor, has been for a long time the biggest contributor to the WHO, is continuing to finance at that level. So I think that's one reason for hope. I also think that after the SARS epidemic several years ago, we actually had a World Health Organization that was much more proactive in terms of talking about travel advisories to particular countries and so forth. And in some ways, it got its wings clipped after that experience and member states pushed back and said, actually, we don't really like it when you boss us around quite this much, even if it is an emergency We don't always appreciate that. And so the WHO has kind of gone through these waves where it had its wings clipped after doing a pretty widely accepted good job with SARS, but ruffling some feathers for some of its member countries. And now what you may see is the reverse of that. So that countries themselves recognize that in some ways the World Health Organization needs to be emboldened, perhaps better financed, perhaps able to do more in terms of longer term planning for crises rather than just responding in the near term and cobbling some kind of response together. So what you may see is that there's more openness now because of the nature of the crisis to empowering the WHO a little bit more like it had been in the past. All right. I'm down for that. I'm always down for a little bit more optimism in my life and on the and on this podcast. But to to talk about another area of your teaching and research interests that's been at the forefront of this pandemic is that we've seen a lot of public and private sector collaboration during the pandemic to develop tests, treatments, vaccines, etc. I mean, I uh, fortunately just this Saturday was fortunate enough to get one of the products of this collaboration in the forms of a uh, Pfizer vaccine right here in this arm. So 
What is your assessment of how this collaboration between those sectors is going and what might it pretend for the future? Well, in terms of the public and private sectors working together on a vaccine, I think that's been encouraging in a lot of ways, at least what we've seen in the U.S. so far. What I do think will be thornier, though, and what I wrote a Duck of Minerva blog post about recently is how the public and private sectors will handle people who don't adhere to public policies surrounding COVID. So whether we're talking about a mask mandate or immunity passports or whatever, I think this country needs to have some really frank conversations about whether the government is going to move into quasi-private spaces like stores or offices to enforce public policies, or whether private sector actors are going to take on more of a public enforcement role. And I think either option is going to be uncomfortable, but it's a conversation that needs to happen. Yeah, no, I agree. And one of the biggest questions I think moving forward is just how this is all going to be handled in our new end of and post-pandemic world. But speaking of which, and speaking of the uh, the future, what do you think that you've learned as a global governance researcher during the pandemic that that's going to inform your research and teaching moving forward? Something that I've really come to appreciate from what I'm observing personally as well as professionally is the importance of leadership. And it can be global leadership, which is what we've talked about mostly, but it can also be leadership nationally or at the state or local level, or even within your own own social group. Leadership is so tough, but it's also so valuable. And that's something that I'm trying to get across in another of my La Follette School courses, Intro to Public Management, where we really talk about the importance of, of leadership at whatever scale you might find yourself at. No, that that is really interesting, and I and and I agree. I think we talk about a lot about research or leadership in the abstract, but oftentimes we don't really dig into what it means and what it can do. Now, as as we're kind of starting to wrap up, I want to ask you what should we have talked about during this interview? Is there anything that we didn't cover that I should have asked you about, or you just feel like our listeners really really need to know about? Well, maybe one thing to keep in mind is the incredible learning abilities and adaptability of human beings. And so when we go through periods like this, where we feel blindsided by challenges, or we are less than enamored with some of the policy responses or the swiftness of the policy responses, don't lose sight of the fact that we as human beings on whatever level are able to learn and change our behavior and do better the next time. So I think that's one sort of ray of hope that we mustn't lose sight of as we think about global governance, international institutions, the blurring of the distinction between the public and the private sector, and responding to COVID is that we are pretty adaptable and we are able to find ways to improve the way that we do things. And then The last question that we've been asking our guests really for the better part of this last year now is, you know, it's been a pretty dark year in terms of politics, global affairs and whatnot. And we've touched on some of that in this podcast. And we like we've been like we've been asking our guests, what's one thing that makes you hopeful these days, you know, either from your professional life or personal life or in current events or outside of it or whatever. You, you, you've touched on something right there with the adaptability of human beings. And I, I think that would be a great answer to the question. But 
What is one thing that you're drawing hope from right now? Yeah, well, I went with with our ability to learn in answer to your previous question. So maybe I'll go more narrow and concrete with this one. Something that makes me feel really hopeful is this time of year with spring and starting to see the flower bulbs emerge from the snow, realizing that we're about to turn a corner and it is very hopeful to see the way that life goes on and cycles continue. And this is very encouraging and hopeful, I think. So I I just love this time of year with the renewal of of growth and flowers and plants and greenness. Oh, no, I I agree completely. I was wearing shorts the other day. It It was great. It was wonderful. Professor Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation and we'd love to have you back sometime. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.